They say you should invest in your adventures. So I booked a one-way ticket to Ireland. For six weeks, I plunged myself into the era of Celtic saints from 400 to 665 AD and followed their footsteps through Ireland, Scotland, and England. I left changed. And I'm convinced that their stories of passionate faith will change you too. So let's step back in time to discover the thin places and the amazing men and women of Celtic history. You're listening to the Exploration Films Podcast. A deep dive into films from around the world. Conversations with producers, directors, and actors where they discuss the behind-the-scenes stories of filmmaking and also reflect on their motivations and their worldview as storytellers. Welcome to the Exploration Films Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Steve Ryder. Today, we're featuring two films from our library by director Rebecca Friedlander, Celtic Pilgrimage and Thin Places. Both these documentaries are about ancient saints of Ireland and the UK. From, you know, the big one, St. Patrick, to so many saints that I'd never heard of, like St. Brendan, St. Columbia, and two of my favorites, St. Adamnan and St. Hilda, and so many more. These films will open your eyes to the rich spiritual history of this region and how Christians of today are leaning into that foundation that these ancient saints laid to bring a new spiritual awakening to the region. Here's my conversation with Rebecca Friedlander. Rebecca Friedlander, thanks for being on the Exploration Films podcast. Oh, it's a privilege. Thanks for having me. Celtic Pilgrimage and Thin Places. Those are the two films that we're going to be talking with you about. Where did the idea for these come from? Because oh. this is obscure stuff that you yeah. don't read about in, you know, as you're studying world history. I think that's what grabbed my attention about it. Really? Is because I discovered all of these amazing stories in church history where God was showing up in some amazing ways. And it was set in beautiful places like Ireland and Scotland. And I just hadn't heard this stuff before. And so I think I first heard about the concept of thin places and the early Celtic saints when I was taking a trip into the highlands north of Glasgow with a friend of mine. And of course, Glencoe and all those huge mountains. It's like Braveheart country, you know, and uh, or at least the movie. So I, I just got intrigued. And, but it was about seven years after that that I started to really delve into this. And uh, I don't know how much of the story you want, but uh, go for it. Okay, well, I was in a little coffee shop in Jerusalem, Israel, Mm -hmm. and it was kind of a tough part of my film journey. I had just gotten sort of kicked off a place that I really uh, wanted to be a part of. (laughs) But I was there all by myself with my cameras, and I happened to run into these two ladies from Northern Ireland Mm -hmm. in this coffee shop. And they started in Jerusalem. And we started just having this conversation and they began to tell me about the early Celtic saints. And I was so intrigued and we ended up spending a couple of days just hanging out. And for the next two years, one of those ladies sent me her notes from the class she was teaching in her church about St. Patrick 
and the early Celtic saints and the real evidence for the life story of Patrick and the movement that he brought to Ireland that changed the world. And at the end of two years, I was looking for a new film project and I just had this feeling that God might be stirring that one up. So I tried to pass it off onto other people, to be really honest. I had some historian friends who were really well-versed in Celtic spirituality. And of course this would have been Christianity during the dark ages. So there wasn't a lot written down. There were some real trustworthy historical records, but there's a whole lot of hearsay. And so I tried to pass it off onto a friend of mine. It was like, hey, you should do this film. And of course he would have none of it. And so by the end of this kind of wrestling match with God, I said, okay, God, if you can use a girl with a camera, you know, here am I, send me. And that turned into a, a trip to Ireland on a one-way ticket for six weeks. And then where I, I started off staying with the lady I had met in Jerusalem for a couple of weeks, that turned into creating Celtic pilgrimage. And then the second program, which was Thin Places and a TV miniseries, calls in places as well. So that little step of faith was all God needed. So when did you get that one-way ticket? What year was that? You know, that's good. I have to check the back of my DVD. That would have been 2017. And then it, the film released in 2018. Yeah. One of the things I love about this film is I love how you tie the stories of the past to also kind of what's going on there with the various ministries around Ireland and Scotland and England and how these ministries have really embraced that and have kind of looked at it almost as a challenge, like we got to pick up where they left off. You know, it was real interesting because I have been to the UK a number of times and not very much to Ireland um, in the South, but I had a lot of friends by that time, whoever there, who were either making music or involved in ministry. And so creating the film was a perfect example to grab my friends who were all artsy and, you know, really into some of the Celtic heritage and be like, hey, will you share your heart with me? And then to meet a lot of new people who were really, you know, carrying out the Celtic Christianity ideas in real practical, modern ways. And so it was just a real beautiful way to just connect with the body of Christ and say, hey, you want to be part of a film? What's on your heart? And that was really beautiful. But I will say that this piece of history is not very well known, even among the Irish and the Scottish today. And so for both films, I ended up doing a film tour back in those lands and doing a number of different churches and showing the film. And it was really beautiful because the Irish would come up to me and say, thank you for telling us who we are. Ooh. Ooh. And the Scottish, yeah, yeah. And so it was like speaking identity over the church and what they carried and over the land. And then the Scottish were the ones who often said, we're so ashamed that an American should have to come and tell us about our own history, but thank you for coming. <laughs> and so it really did feel like a, a missionary journey Ooh. through the art of, of film and storytelling. What's fascinating about some of these ancient places is that they still carry a sense of the presence of God. It's like the ancient Celts deposited so much passion into prayer and intimacy with the Lord that it's spilled over into the land and now the very rocks are crying out. So how did you get involved in film and storytelling? Completely by accident. 
I was traveling and speaking in churches with my potter's wheel in my early and mid 20s. And I prayed for about two years that God would send someone to help me record just a film of me doing my little performance on stage because people were asking for a DVD. And after two years of not getting any answers from God, I thought, well, maybe I should just change the way that I'm praying. And so I said, God, if you want me to film this, will you send me a camera? And so prayed that with my little life group at the time. And then the very next day, somebody walks into the recording studio I was working at and says, oh yeah, you know, the Lord already told me to buy a camera and donate it to the studio. So let's go to the store right now and get one. And that was my the very next first, day. The next day. That's so quick. I thought, okay, God, but it was a really long learning curve. So started out doing my little DVD and took a year to figure out how to do it. And then uh, did a little public access TV network show that aired every week. And I did, uh, gosh, probably over 70 episodes for them. And that eventually got caught on with some larger Christian TV networks. But it was just me and my camera. Where did you grow up? I was born in Wisconsin, and then my family moved to Texas when I was, yeah. On Wisconsin. Yeah. Lots of farm country and corn. and Where in Wisconsin? Milwaukee, and then north of Milwaukee in the country. Okay. Yeah, and then moved to Texas when I was a teenager, and then after that I've lived in San Diego and Nashville and done quite a bit of traveling. You have, and I checked out your website, and you have quite a story, quite a testimony Talk about that. Well, is there a specific part that you'd like to hear? <laughs> well, I mean, it, well, specifically question. the car accident mm. that's referenced and how that changed really what looked like it changed the trajectory of your family. Yeah. You know, I think that when we go through traumatic or painful situations in life, it either can really cause us to check out of our faith or it causes us to really press in and want to go deep with God. And so much of that is just his grace. And in the end, he brings us back around so many times anyway, you know, because he's all writing our story differently. But I think going through some rough times really pushed me deep into the heart of Jesus. And what that looked like for me was we were living in Wisconsin, my whole family. We were a homeschool family right there in the almost pioneer days. Not quite pioneer, but pretty close to where everybody was like, you're doing what? You're homeschooling your children? You must be crazy. So we were, you know, the little growing up in the country, you know, with a whole bunch of chickens family when it wasn't super popular to do. And on Christmas Day, when I was nine, my whole family was in a car accident. And um, what year was this? Oh, you're telling me to tell my age. Huh? <laughs> I was nine years old. That's what I'll say. Yeah. So I was nine years old, oldest of three kids. And myself and my youngest brother and my dad were all in the back seat. And we were thrown from the car. And my dad hit his head really hard on the pavement and suffered a traumatic brain injury. So I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks. We did a bunch of glass on my face and had to have plastic surgery and fractured bones and all of those things. That when he came out of his coma two weeks later, it was like talking to another person. Mm-hmm. So he had really 
suffered a lot of mental and emotional and physical effects from the car accident. And so one thing led to another. My parents ended up divorcing about a year and a half later. And my dad was arrested for child abuse. So I didn't see him very much through my teenage years. And then I didn't see him at all for about eight years until God started really doing some work in my life about forgiveness, but also bringing me some mentors who brought me a lot of steps toward inner healing. Sometimes it's not enough to just forgive. You have to get healed too. Mm -hmm. And so on the other side of some of that, in my mid-20s, they said, you know, I think you need to reach out to your dad, Rebecca. And I was like, no, you don't know my dad. He's not a healthy, that wouldn't be a healthy situation. And, And yet I ended up reaching out to him got a little bit convicted. I was like, okay, God, we'll give this a try. And sat, I remember sitting with him at a coffee shop in Wisconsin and having a conversation with my dad was one of the most amazing things that had happened in my life. God had been working in his heart and he was tender and sweet and in love with Jesus. And I was shocked. Never believed that God would do a work in my dad's heart. And so we corresponded for a couple of years. And I remember when he came to me and he said, I just want to clear the air. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. And I'm asking you to forgive me. Wow. And that opened the door for this beautiful restoration and rebuilding of trust. And shortly after that, I ended up moving him down to Texas, found a beautiful log home for him in the country and help take care of him in different ways for the last 12 years of his life. Mm. And so when he passed away about a year and a half ago, he left me his long home. And that's that where we're doing right this now? interview. That's where I am today. Yeah. And so now we use this for a place for worship and spiritual retreats mm. and have a ministry team that meets here and we do all sorts of stuff. So it's just been pretty crazy to see how God has brought things full circle, but Yeah. Forgiveness is pretty big with God. You never know how he's going to reward it. (laughs) He loves to bless people who look like Jesus and and kindness and it's a big part of forgiveness. And yeah, he's certainly big into rewarding people who practice it. So let's get back to the films. Who are some of those saints that you really seem to resonate with that really just kind of, when you heard their story, you identified with them or it was something that just really moved you? That's a great question. Well, St. Patrick, for sure. He had a story of going through a whole lot of trauma and drama in his life, even as a teenager. And the interesting thing about Patrick is that we have his own writings called the confession. So we really can go back to his own words and his account of his life. And uh, we know that he was, you know, mistreated and kidnapped and put into slavery as a teenager and had to walk through a lot of things and then went back to Ireland as a missionary after getting his education. And so we see God doing a huge work of restoration in Patrick's life, which I I love because I just think that's so beautiful, just seeing God show up in those ways and having tasted that a little bit in my life. So for those Um, that don't know, talk about that restoration. What had happened and how did restoration occur? 
Sure. For St. Patrick, you know, he was born probably on the coast of England, possibly in Scotland. But at that point, those countries would have had completely different names and different territories. And so uh, he lived during a time in the 400s. So the fifth century when the Roman Empire was really falling apart and all the protection that had covered that area of Britannia was leaving. You know, it would be like as if our police force just up and left. So all of a sudden you have these pirates or we would think of them today as terrorists who were coming into the territory and just kidnapping people and taking them as slaves. And Patrick came from a wealthy family, so he was educated in Christianity, but it wasn't really real to him until he was captured by pirates at the age of 16 and taken across the Irish Sea to Ireland. And for six years, he kept probably sheep. It was in those years that he learned how to pray, and he learned to have a really deep, intimate relationship with the Lord. And then one night he has a dream or a vision and God says, it's time to go. Your ship is ready. So he gets up and walks about 200 miles to the coast. And sure enough, there's a ship. And one thing leads to another. He ends up getting back to his family, has this amazing reconnection. And then he has another dream or vision. And it's the call of the Irish. And he sees all of these people and they're calling to him to come back and teach them about the Lord. And so it so shakes him up and he has to decide if he's going to follow the call of God. And so he tears himself away from his family and goes and studies for about 20 years. And it would seem from his writings, he doesn't go to the Roman church, which later becomes the Catholic church, but he actually goes to a place that was founded by a group that came from the desert fathers and mothers that were really into prayer and to community and really being intimate with God. And he takes that back to Ireland. And so we see this whole monastic communities uh, movement that springs up all over Ireland during the dark ages, lasts for several hundreds year of years, and then spreads that gospel all over Europe. Mm-hmm. God did amazing things with a teenage boy who just figure out how to pray and cry out to God when things were tough. As soon as he prays, the captain has a change of heart and he and the crew, they they beckon him back again. And here's the next choice. It's a little thing and it will be overlooked. The captain and the crew said, uh, you must now greet us after a pagan custom, which wasn't God honoring, Uh, it was godless. What would you do? It's only a little thing. Nobody is ever going to know if I compromise on just this one thing. Patrick finds himself saying, no, I can't do that. It seems they shrug their shoulders and say, okay, we'll come on board. And so his integrity remains intact. That was one of the interesting things to me. I think it was in Thin Places where you talked about, you basically contrasted the Roman church and the Celtic church and how, you know, the stark differences. Talk about that. Oh, that's a great question. I'll try to give this in a nutshell, and you can ask more questions if you want me to go further, because there's a lot in this. I actually really? just got my master's in Celtic studies. Ooh. So this is, a, I love right. this topic. Yeah, so really what we see happening is there were, just like we have today, there are many different movements within the church, and they have different leaders, and they look a little bit different. 
And that was the same thing that happened in the church, even from the first century, because you had different apostles who did things a little bit differently. And we're not talking about big theological differences, and they would have all considered themselves part of the universal church. But one thing that you have is uh, two movements that sprang up that were really influential in the Celtic church. And that was the uh, followers of the apostle John, who really kept some of the Jewish and Hebrew traditions within their faith. They were really big into intimacy and prayer. And just like the apostle John leaning on the chest of Jesus to hear his heartbeat. And then you have another movement that really sprang up in about the 200s. And that was the desert fathers and mothers. And they were the ones who left the Roman cities when Christianity became legal and things started to get a bit muddy. And there were a lot of political favors being granted to Christians and faith began to get watered down. And so these people were just like, okay, we're going to leave the cities where everything's getting real politicized, and we're going to go out in the deserts and seek God for ourselves. And you have this whole movement of both men and women who just ran after God in the desert. And it was to the point where people said there's going to be more people in the deserts than there are in the cities. And it was from those two movements that we see that there's this merging of both the heart of the Apostle John to keep some of the Hebrew roots and traditions, and also the Desert Fathers and Mothers that had this real passion for prayer and some of the spiritual disciplines. Those two things merged. And from there, we see the Celtic Church really springing up. Now, to get around to your question, There was a third movement that was going on at that time, and that was the church at Rome. So they claimed that St. Peter was their leader, and really they set up their church the same way that a Roman army was set up. So you had your dictator and your hierarchy of leadership, and everyone was supposed to fall in line just like a Roman army would fall in line. And so they created their church systems kind of like a Roman road was created where they just sort of bulldoze everything in the way. And just sort of, this is how you do it. And so, whereas the Celtic church was very much bonded with the culture, and as long as it wasn't sin, they would adopt all the practices of the culture so they could really speak the language of the people and be really relevant. Mm. And so you see these two real, this power struggle that happened within the Celtic church. They were very much, they were very organic. They definitely had leaders, but their leaders were so committed to fasting and prayer, discipling people and modeling Christianity. There wasn't really a hierarchy there. All of their churches were independently governed. And then you have the Roman system that said, wow, you know, Ireland and Scotland, these churches are not paying tribute to the Pope. You know, they don't acknowledge us as their ultimate leader. And they're still keeping all of these Jewish customs, including the date of Easter, according to the Hebrew calendar. So there was a huge collision between these two churches. And eventually it became a real power struggle that put an end to the Celtic way of spirituality. One of the contested issues between churches was the date of Easter, which the Roman church changed to remove all ties with Hebrew roots and to establish Christianity as its own religion while the Celtic Church embraced the resurrection and its connection to Passover on the Jewish calendar. A strange twist in the difference of calendars caused the king to summon church leaders from both sides for a council at Whitby Abbey. How has that been reborn? The Celtic Church? Yeah. 
You know, it's really interesting. And I'm going to answer that in a roundabout way. When I took Thin Places back to Ireland, it's real different over there. It's not something that Americans understand easily. Because in the North, it, you have the Protestants. And in the South, you have the Catholics. There's no separation of church and state. And so they're both political parties as well as religious systems. And so, of course, the Protestants, they have their way of keeping church, which is not necessarily like our Protestant. It just means they're not Catholics and they're, they're independent. They're loyal to England. And then in the South, you have this tradition of strong Catholicism. And so it's really interesting when I was showing the film, because I remember I had this interview with this reporter in the South. So this was very much Catholic area. And he's trying to ask me all these questions because he said, there's a lot of people in our country that's really upset with the Catholic church. There's a lot of things, you know, like even perversion stuff that's coming out about the Catholics and the priests and all this stuff and women's rights and all of these things. And he's like, you know, what would you tell people about their quest for God? And I just encourage him to, to go back, you know, the way that Christianity came to Ireland was not Catholic. And it was a thousand years before Protestantism even came. And it was this idea of people who were really honest with God and seeking the Lord deeply in prayer and very immersed in the scriptures and a very personal connection to Christ and to community. And if we can simplify the gospel to that, I think we don't have to be quite as angry at the church. <laughs> and it was crazy for them because they didn't know that there was another alternative, if you will, other than Catholic or Protestant. And yet the way that they had received the gospel was the simplicity of just knowing Jesus and connecting with others in community. And I think that's what it really all boils down to. I had a moment when I walked into this church because on the podium behind me, there's a book that's opened up with two passages of scripture inside. The first one is John 17. Jesus and his heart for the Father, he's pouring out his heart to his Father in prayer. And then on the next page is Acts chapter two. I love these two scriptures together because I think that really typifies what we're learning about the ancient Celts. They were passionate about intimacy with God. They were pursuing community with each other. And then they were ready to be ignited with the Holy Spirit and carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Have you seen your films make an impact in starting to reawaken that? I think it's been a great, great honor to be able to go and put these in the hands of Christians, some of them which, which know this information and are absolutely delighted to see it on screen. Yeah. That has been a really great joy. And just to see it circulated has been a lot of fun. Have you seen traction over there with that reawakening? Well, I think there was a lot happening and then, you know, everything got shut down with COVID. But I, I think there's a lot of, you know, my friends tell me some of the really cool things that are happening and I think are going to get ready to happen when things start opening up a bit more. Talk about St. Brendan. He was one of my favorites, that, that stories in those films. Yeah, St. Brendan the Navigator. Uh, he was one of the first ones that really caught my attention because he was so big into pilgrimage. He went off onto a trip and that has been, it was documented. It's not a really close um, 
Well, let me just say this. He went off on a trip. People believe that from his writings that he probably got to North America. And there's actually documented evidence that the Celts would have been in North America by about the 8th century. So this would have been probably the 500s, so maybe 150 years even before then. Uh, St. Brendan probably got to Newfoundland and some of these other lands. And he just writes of these incredible adventures. And the interesting thing about the record is that it tells us that he went because there was a land that God had promised to the saints of a future age. And he went to scope it out. And if that was North America, that's pretty interesting that God would send some prayer warriors and saints to this land just to pioneer it for those of us who will come. Well, the documented evidence I had no idea about was in West Virginia. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just along the coast. Like, hey, I made an appearance. Yeah, it penetrated all the way to freaking West Virginia. Yeah, it's there. There's a cave with etchings of modern uh, ancient Pictish Ogham writing from Celtic saints that talk about being there on Christmas Day and seeing the light come through a crack in this cave. And, and it does. You can see that there's a beam of light that comes through the cave and it would have come on that close to winter solstice day. That's pretty cool. St. Hilda. Talk about her. Yeah, she really grabbed my attention because she was a female leader of a co-ed monastery. Her story is really interesting. She lost her father. He was poisoned when uh, she was young and she grew up as one of the royalty in Northern England. So she was not actually Celtic, but she converted to Celtic Christianity through an Irish missionary, St. Aidan. And she just had a passion for the Lord. And he actually wrote to her and uh, said, you know, would you stay with us and start up a monastic community? And so she did. And pretty soon she graduated and she had connections because she was royalty. And so when uh, one of her relatives won a whole bunch of land in battle, he gave her about over 2,000 acres for her community. And so she just had this thriving, massive group. And what I love about her is that she was really someone as a leader who would call the gifts out of other people. And so the first documented worship leader of the church was discovered in her community. It was a man who was a cademan or cowman. He would have herded the cows and he started having dreams where he was getting all of this heavenly music and he wrote it down and brought it to Hilda. And he wasn't a musician. No, he was very ashamed that he had no musical ability until he had this dream where this angel came to him and said, Cademan, sing me something. He's like, I can't, I can't sing. And the angel said, oh, but you'll sing for me. And he opens his mouth and this beautiful, beautiful song comes out. So he wakes up, he writes it down as best as he can, brings it you know, to the community. And Hilda is like recognizing this. And she's like, yeah, I think they were need to give you a promotion. You know, let's bring you out of the stable. And, uh, and he wrote many, many songs, which was powerful back then, because then right back then, if you were outside of the church, you couldn't read, but you could memorize a song. So it was a song that was full of things about scripture or liturgy or truth. Then it was something that could be communicated to anyone. So that's a great story. So I love St. Hilda and that she was a bit out of the box, but she, there were other leaders that really challenged her to rise up 
to her potential and she activated other people as well, which is really special. Talk about St. Adamnan. Adamnan, he's a really unique character. He lived during the time where there was starting to be a lot of contention between the Roman church and the Celtic church. And so it was in a time where all of Ireland had been converted to Christianity. Huge pieces of Scotland had come to know Christ. And he began to take the gospel into the interior of Scotland. He was also an abbot at Iona, which was like the kind of head honcho church place at the time um, of a lot of leaders. But he also was a very, I think he had a background of law. No, I may be wrong about that. <laughs> Don't quote me on that one. But he was very um, strong in his writing gifting. So he wrote a chronicle about the life of St. Columba. And he also wrote a document that was kind of a political document that banished the use of slavery and sending women to battle. So he had this during these times, you know, some people were Christian, but it was also very brutal. Lots of war, lots of chaos. People were forcing the women and the children, even nursing mothers to go into battle with their children with them. There were just some things that were just not very humane that were going on. And so he wrote a document and had it signed by all of these kings and powerful clergymen that prohibited certain kind of put war, law, laws of war into place in a time where there really wasn't anything like that. And so he really went political as well with his belief. But that came out of a dream of his mother coming to him saying, stand yeah. up for the women and children and said it like over and over, stand up for the women and children. Yeah, we had, um, it's really interesting because there is a documented evidence and it's really interesting because so many of the things that the Celtic states did came from their life of prayer. And they believed that God would speak to them in dreams and in visions and through other people around them. And so the whole movement for morality and this whole political thing was birthed because of a dream where a dominant's mother, whom he really loved, came to him and basically told him to stand up for the women and children who were being deeply oppressed, almost slave labor during that time. And so he pulled out his pen and he wrote a document and followed through. You talked about Ireland converting. What was in Ireland prior to St. Patrick going over there? What was the culture like? What was he fighting against? Sure. There was, of course, a lot of paganism. So at that point, there was slavery, obviously, because he'd been taken as a slave. There was also the practice of human sacrifice. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of paganism that goes way back, right? In Ireland and Scotland, we can see from the standing stones, a lot of them. And I've been to some of the stone circles where they have, you know, their 12 stones. And then in the middle, there's an altar. And that's where the blood sacrifices were made. And there have been finds of archaeological diggings that have discovered human remains. So it would have seemed that they did human sacrifice as well. Uh, there's a saying that Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland, which is not the case because there were never any snakes in Ireland. However, um, it may be a reference to some of the parts of darkness there. So by the end of Patrick's life, there was no more slavery. Human sacrifice had ceased. And within another generation or two, the entire island had 
come to know Christ, which was a huge transformation for them. As we step back into Celtic history, we find that the saints weren't the only ones to have monuments in sacred places. Druid priests also set up sites for prayer, which they considered thin places for pagan worship. Archaeological digs at stone circles reveal that humans were sacrificed at these sites. When Christianity came to the Celtic nations, the saints moved in miraculous power from God and entire tribes and kingdoms converted to Christianity. Sometimes the clash between light and darkness resulted in a powerful display of supernatural forces and time and time again, pagan tribes converted to Christianity. However, this display of power never seemed to distract the saints from their calling. They retreated into wilderness places to hear the voice of God and continued to build relationship with Christ and his followers. How about St. Ronan? Yeah, so St. Ronan, I had to get really creative with that one because I loved his story, but there's not a whole lot of documented evidence. What we do know is that there's a little tiny island to the very north of Scotland. It's the furthest north that any island in Scotland is inhabited. And there's a real small prayer cell there, which is just a little hut made out of stones that dates back to uh, about the 500s. And so we know that there was a Celtic saint there. And what would happen is that these guys, again, because they had so much from the desert fathers and mothers inside of them, some of them would just go out and build a place and pray and spend their entire lives in prayer to God. And a lot of the villages nearby would actually enjoy that so much because they felt safe and they felt protected because they knew that this prayer warrior was praying over their city. And so the story of Ronan, it's said that he went to evangelize the island of Lewis, which is in the Hebrides, uh, islands of Scotland, but they didn't like him and they kicked him off. And he just finally got tired of trying to deal with these people. And so he prayed. And the legend says that there was a sea creature that came up from the sea and carried him to this little island. And one way or another, a Celtic saint got there because there's their little prayer hut. And it is a tough place to get to. Even today, they say that it has to be great weather for you to get there by a really good boat system. But what's interesting is that the island of Lewis from like the 1800s to 1900s has this amazing story of revival and how God just supernaturally moved and so many people came to the Lord. So you just kind of wonder if God was answering the prayers, you know, 1500 years earlier of, of St. Ronan and actually his sisters came to join him as well and spent their entire lives in prayer on that island. What have you learned as a filmmaker as you have developed from getting that camera gifted to you yeah i think the anointing of the holy spirit is way better than a big budget there's nobody ever came and gave me a million dollars and said go make a film so i had to get really creative and pray a lot (laughs) but it was fun because i think even shooting these films again mostly it was me and my camera I had some drone pilots that came in and helped and an assistant at one point, but everything else was just me filming. And so, you know, a lot of prayer, a lot of really figuring out clever ways to communicate. There's one story about I was filming Thin Places and I really wanted to shoot in Scotland, but I didn't have a good period costume. 
I went to all these fabric shops, shops could not find what I wanted. So I went back to the mission house I was staying at, opened up the closet and there's this gray wool blanket. So I go to the people who were running the, the mission place. I was like, hey, do you mind if I use this blanket? And they had seen my first film. So they're like, yeah, go ahead, use our sewing room, whatever. And so I created this really <laughs> fun costume I could never have found anywhere else from a wool blanket in a wardrobe in Scotland. And we just wore that thing all up and down Scotland. It was just great. So I think creativity and prayer and the leading of the Holy Spirit is so much better sometimes than having a big budget because you just have to really push yourself to get creative and really develop your eye. A lot of, you know, good critique is always really good too, if you want to <laughs> get further along in your gifting. So it keeps you really humble and teachable. But I think creativity and asking the Holy Spirit for help creatively is just fun. My friends, I must know. Who did Jesus give the keys of the kingdom of heaven to? John? Columba? Or, or St. Peter, as I've heard it recently told? Is it he who holds the keys to the gates of eternal life? For my friends, I will not stake my eternal soul on the wrong decision. So creatively, since you weren't a big budget, how did you get those actors and those costumes and the battle scenes and reenact all those reenactments that you have throughout both films? Yeah, so much relationships. Everyone volunteered. Some of them I just recruited on the spot. I have a good the shot of the pirates for capturing St. Patrick. I was actually speaking at a church in Alaska. Now I told the pastor, I was like, hey, we're doing the shoot on the beach later. I need some more pirates. Can we just announce it in church? You know, <laughs> it turns out we got this guy who's like the stage, the great stage producer guy. And he knew how to like do all the punches and like beat someone up to make it look like they're getting hurt. And they were, he just volunteered like two hours later. I'm like, you know, throwing all these costumes together because we got more people than we needed. So everyone was volunteers. A lot of them were friends of mine. Some of them were friends who just had really good facial, you know, structures. And if it was a guy, I was like, hey, could you grow a beard? Like we're doing this film, you want to be part of it? And uh, the beautiful thing is that you can do that if you're not, if you don't have a lot of dialogue. You know, it's like as soon as someone opens your mouth, their mouth is like, oh, you're a Texan, aren't you? But you do, if you just, it's all narrated, you can get away with stuff. I also worked with the Fellowship of Christian Swordsmen in Texas out of Tyler, and they just uh, do amazing really? sword training. And um, so it was super fun. I ended up taking some lessons myself so I could communicate a little bit better and uh, traveled all over with some of those guys. Mostly we filmed here, but in Texas, it was on location. But I have done a film with them where I went up to Alaska and took some of them and we did a bunch of sword fighting. So that was fun. What advice do you have for a young filmmaker who is like, I have this idea. I want to get into this. What would you say? It probably depends on what kind of filmmaker you want to do. You know, if you want to be on the set with a huge uh, budget film, then, you know, going to school and learning the lingo would be a great way to do that. Uh, but always, even if you want to just do something independently, finding someone to shadow is a great, great way to learn skills really quickly. 
I wish I'd had that opportunity, but I think also really being honest and being willing to get your work critiqued by other filmmakers. Don't feel like it's going to cramp your style. You know, there's a lot of things that are just really good. I remember there was one TV network, the first international TV network that I worked with, and they looked at my little show that I was doing and they're like, well, if you make these, you know, four or five changes, we'll air your program. And I was like, great, let's do it because it helped me make a better film. So I think being really, really honest with yourself and open to critique from people who know what they're talking about, not just anybody, but uh, those are probably the biggest tips. What do you want people to take away from these films? I think being challenged in our own faith, I was certainly challenged in my faith when I heard some of these stories because these were people who were living with so much passion and in some ways, I felt like I found a group of friends who were in a part of history that I hadn't really connected with before. I think a lot of people connect with Celtic spirituality, the Christian Celtic spirituality, and they find so much that they can resonate with. And so I help people find something, whether it's an understanding of why they love to hear bagpipes and an Irish whistle, or maybe a little bit more of how God really challenges us to step out of our comfort zone and connect with him in some really beautiful ways. I think it's inspiring to anyone who wants to go to that part of history. What's your hope for these films? Well, world domination is always a good, <laughs> uh, I think the more that people, especially in the body of Christ can pick up these films and really educate themselves, whether it's through these films or through other resources, the more we can connect with a piece of history that I think we can really pull from for the body of Christ today, you know, practices like they did in the Celtic church, like soul friendship, uh, like um, spiritual mentoring, things like both worship and prayer and also community and the balance of both of those things. There's just some really beautiful things that I think we can learn from today as we look back in, in history and, and see what they did. What practically could we apply well, I think soul friendship, for one, is a huge one. The Celts would say that a soul friend or an Adam Karim was someone who was a little bit further along in the faith than you are, that you would go to and say, will you speak into my life? And it was a real honest friendship. There's records of one man who led a huge monastery, a huge community, and his soul friend was a hermit out on a desert island. And every few months, the man would cross the waters to come and visit. And when they would get together, they described the conversations like they were taking great draughts of living water because they were just talking about the things that mattered and what they were learning and whatever it was, but it's just these beautiful conversations. And I think the idea of, of finding, being brave enough to find a mentor and also be a mentor is something that we can really cultivate from, really some practical ways of discipleship and figuring out what that looks like today in some healthy ways would be great. Rebecca, you have a class coming up this fall. You're working with a theological seminary, right? Yes. So it's an Episcopalian theological seminary that really loves the Celtic heritage. And I just received my master's in Celtic studies from them. Congratulations. And so part of my, thank you. Uh, part of my dissertation was to create a nine part lecture series about what going a bit deeper into this whole Celtic spirituality and giving people a crash course. There's a bunch of footage from the films and the classes, as well as just some books that everybody gets to read together 
and write a few reports and then people get a certificate at the end of the class. So if anybody wants to know more uh, and go a bit deeper into Celtic history, which is really just a phenomenal experience. It is so much fun. We'll be doing that soon. And, and you can find more on my website, which is RebeccaFriedlander.com. Spell that out. Sure. It's Rebecca, R-E-B-E-C-C-A, and Friedlander, like fried, F-R-I-E-D, Lander, L-A-N-D-E-R. Rebecca Friedlander, thanks for being on the Exploration Films Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Exploration Films Podcast. To check out this film, you can go to our new streaming service, exploreflix.world. Exploration Films has been a pioneer and leader in the faith and family film space, and that's why we're so excited to tell you we finally have launched our own streaming service, exploreflix.world. If you or your family are looking for amazing films, compelling documentaries, unique stories, concerts, and Christian growth resources that all support your Christian worldview, then check out exploreflix.world and get seven days free. All the films we talk about on this podcast and many, many more are available there. You can find a link at our website, explorationfilms.com, or you can go directly to explorefix.world. For the entire Exploration Films team, I'm Steve Ryder. Thank you for investing your time with us. That's a wrap. 